2: It it is, these are interesting times and as we know, interesting times can be both a blessing and a curse. So, you know, on a personal note, I was in my car yesterday when some of this was happening. So I was listening to it on NPR, which, you know, is not a bad way to do something like that. There's a way in which in your quest for visual images you can sort of lose the thread and you can stay on the thread. I'm not just tooting public radio's horn when I say this. Anyway, uh, a congressman from Vermont, uh, Peter Welch, was describing what they were going through right now and was describing, you know, being told by uh, police to lie down on the floor uh, and hearing the sounds of battering against the door of the chamber. And I just started to cry. Um, I just started to cry. I mean, uh, I... I'm going through some other stuff right now, maybe a little bit on edge. But I think that was the response in a way of a lot of different people that our nerves are pretty frayed anyway. And then to have something like this happen, something that really seems like it belongs in a Gerard Butler movie or an episode of 24 or something, except that it's not, except that it's happening right here uh, and that it's happening with the advocacy uh, of the president of the United States. I would say the other jaw-dropping moment for me was, you know, 30, 40 minutes later, I was still in my car coming back from the place I'd gone to, uh, and uh, and Mary Louise Kelly started talking about the fact they were going to play uh, a tape that, um, that President Trump had released that was understood to be a call for calm. Uh, and it was clear that Mary Louise Kelly herself had not heard that tape yet. She was going to hear it just as we were hearing it. And then you know what the tape sounded like. It was the, we love you, you're special people. Uh, This election was stolen, it was fraudulent. It was the most incendiary call for peace and calm ever issued by a public official anywhere. I'm confident in saying that. It would just be impossible to, in the guise of asking for calm, uh, to do something that was more inflammatory than that. Uh, And so my jaw did fully drop at that moment. Uh, and Mary Louise Kelly, uh, what it was interesting, too, was halfway through it, or maybe just, I don't know, let's say halfway through it, it was clear to her what the tape was, and she hadn't heard it before, and you could hear her, perhaps not realizing the mic was on, say, how long is this? Because, like, you know, the question is, like, how long do you want to run this thing? in which the president really makes matters worse by emphasizing his belief in in a stolen election and the fraudulence of the election. All right, that's enough out of me. Uh, Later in the show, we'll take your phone calls. Hold those calls right now. Don't call any number. Uh, until I tell you to, because otherwise she'll just get mad. We have other things we need to do. We have a guest first. Uh, we're uh, very pleased about that. Uh, Ru- Ruth Ben-Ghiat uh, is professor of history and Italian studies at New York University, a frequent contributor to CNN Opinion, where she has, in fact, opined about this. Her new book is Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present. Um, so, first of all, welcome to our show. Thank you. And, and maybe just begin. I mean, you know, yesterday was... I think, a little bit of a Rorschach blot. I mean, p- different people looked at it and saw different things. Uh, and a lot of that depended on what kind of leanings you went in with. And some of it just is like how you read uh, a chaotic situation. What what did you see yesterday?
3: Um, yeah, it's true that some people saw uh, these insurgents as doing what was necessary to save Trump, the victim. I saw this as as a logical and, in a way, almost inevitable outcome of all that Trump has uh, been preaching and cultivating and propagandizing about since his campaign, since before he got into office. He has, um, you know, presented himself as the only man who can fix the system. He is. Anchored people to himself with a very successful personality cult. He has um, told everyone that elections are rigged and that he's been deprived of something that's rightfully his. And he drew these extremists to him uh, and rewarded them with attention and his brand of love. And then he had them ready and waiting to be called upon when the moment was right. right. So that's how I saw that.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I think it's worth noting that. In a way, I think I could go back to 2017 and find an interview or two on this show, probably with someone like Sarah Kenzior, in which this whole thing was described, you know, this whole notion that he would ultimately be willing to resort to violence to to maintain his power. I'm, I'm sure somebody described it on this show. I know that for me... The trigger moment was, uh, and I've forgotten exactly how long ago this was, but that the moment where he pardoned a lot of uh, military people who were accused of, and in some cases convicted of, war crimes. Uh, yeah. and, they, and he did it over the objections of his own chiefs of staff, the people who were the secretaries of, of the various branches of the military. Uh, they didn't want these people pardoned, but he wanted them pardoned. And I remember thinking at the time, uh, he, he probably thinks they're going to be useful to him, you know, at some point where he needs people who are unscrupulous and violent and trained in weapons. Uh, and, and so, but I think also, and I don't know if this is something that's kind of turned up in your research, there's a way in which we make those those that kind of thinking abstract, and then are shocked to see it nonetheless when it actually plays out in real life. Uh, maybe you can say a little bit about that. How hard it is to really believe that a strong man is going to act like a strong man.
3: Yeah, I, I. So I've been. I was one of the people who, before he was inaugurated, uh, wrote a wrote an op ed for CNN saying Trump is following the authoritarian playbook. So. One of the challenges has been to have Americans um, think of their country as somewhere where something, things like this could happen. And this, uh, sadly, has been the same delusion that other peoples uh, experienced around the world. And so my book is the first book to put Trump in uh, historical perspective of a 100 years, starting with Mussolini of authoritarianism. And over and over, people were not prepared (laughs) to see these extremist, often outsiders who come into politics and 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 act in ways that that, you know, are too upsetting to fully digest. And then they get um, legitimated by conservative elites, uh, by business, you know, and religious institutions. And so people can be lulled into thinking that it's okay. And instead, what we've seen you know, throughout uh, prepared us, really, if you were paying attention for what's gone on since he lost the election. And you mentioned the pardons. Uh, I talk about pardons in the book because, you know, men like Trump, uh, the idea of going, of leaving office is like a psychological annihilation. They can't imagine life without control of resources and bodies and souls and adulation. So they will resort to anything. They will literally do anything to stay in office. So Trump explored all these different options, you know, military intervention and electoral you know, manipulation. But what he did to set this up, this new period of desperate you know, measures, was to have a purge of his inner circle. And so he's, he both purged people who were not loyal enough, and then he pardoned people who were, as you say, the very kind of unscrupulous person that you need when the stakes are going to be higher. And Trump's stakes were the highest possible. He was going to steal an election. So Flynn was pardoned and promptly started talking about martial law. So these are dynamics and processes that happen over and over again with authoritarian leaders. And it's now our turn to be experiencing this.
2: So the you, you've been using the word authoritarian, which is a perfectly good word. Um, but I'm also wondering, I mean, you know, some of the wisdom about this is you can't deal with a problem until you name it. Uh, is fascism also the right word? I mean, there's uh, one of your fellow academics, John McNeil, has written about this repeatedly in the Washington Post. He even hands out Benito's uh, in various categories, like hyper-national, hypernationalism and militarism, glorification of violence and readiness to use it in politics. Uh, and so I, I don't know, is fascism the right or wrong word to use for what we're seeing right now?
3: So fascism is really one stage of a larger authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. And and they, these are, you know, they, it takes different forms in different eras. So there's without a doubt, Trump is using methods And tactics that were pioneered by fascists like Mussolini, like the personality cult and propaganda and and of course the use of these like paramilitary type non-state actors is straight out of, he was the first one with the black shirts to have his march on Rome. So But it doesn't doesn't cover the whole scope of what Trump is doing because he also takes from the age of military coups. Look at everything that went on in Lafayette Square in D.C. in the summer, and he was exploring a military option. And you could, you know, as many people call this a kind of coup. But then he also takes from our own age, where you come into power through elections and you have to manipulate elections to stay there. So I call him an authoritarian who sadly for us, channels all the main periods of authoritarian history and brings them home because many of these uh, you know, people were uh, supported by US-backed coups. And so there's also that theme that a lot of this knowledge about illiberalism, um, Paul Manafort and Roger Stone worked for multiple dictators before they worked for, for Trump. They worked for Mobutu, they worked for Ferdinand Marcus, and Manafort worked for Putin. And then there's Steve Bannon, who has spent his whole life as a far-right propagandist. And so Trump surrounded himself with people who have a lot of wisdom taken from the global history of authoritarianism about how to take down American democracy. So fascism doesn't capture, actually, the full danger of what he's trying to do.
2: So um, just to build on a point that you made uh, there in your answer, you know, much has been made, and I think legitimately so, of the disparity between the readiness yesterday and and what happened uh, on June 1st, uh, when after days of mostly peaceful protests, the National Guard, the Secret Service, the U.S. Park Police fired tear gas Mm -hmm. and rubber bullets to disperse a nonviolent crowd in Lafayette Square outside the White House so he could do that whole Bible thing. There were people in uniform they kind of didn't really have labels on them. You couldn't really tell who they were, but there sure were a hell of a lot of them, way more than they needed to control a largely peaceful demonstration. And then yesterday, when really like a heck of a lot of noise had been made going into this, and you knew that there were going to be Proud Boys and various other kinds of extremists at this thing, they seemed understaffed from a security point of view. And I I know that's not necessarily your area of expertise, but it does sort of suggest that, you know, in an author- authoritarian regime, the military and paramilitary are available for certain things and not for other things.
3: Oh, absolutely. Um, and, you know, Trump has um, been very savvy at weaponizing and exacerbating trends that started before him, such as this militarization of the police, Um, ICE acts like uh, a paramilitary coming in with full tactical gear and, you know, Hummer-like vehicles into neighborhoods to, you know, search and hunt down immigrants. It's, uh, you know, like like in a junta in in another country. So this show in the summer actually was part of the psychological warfare that Trump's been waging on the American people. Uh, with these, you know, unmarked troops and all of this. This was sheer theater of intimidation. And the other thing, I always thought of this as a rehearsal for for the election period. He was testing uh, what was possible. And he wanted to make sure that there wouldn't be protests, um, you know, preventively trying to classify protesters as terrorists, um, that kind of thing. So it is, you know, it's they haven't been able to to blame this on Antifa very uh Easily this time, um, but it's it is very interesting that um, that who showed up for this. And, and I'm actually the understaffing. I'm more concerned about is the police.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, in the history of authoritarianism, non-action by law enforcement when you have non-state actors like paramilitaries is a big deal. You you ab- aid and abet the lawless behavior by not acting. And so many people have observed the contrast between, again, the big show of force in the summer against Black Lives Matter uh, protesters and what happened here, where they were not only allowed to enter the Capitol, they were allowed to waltz out. And then many of them in Kansas also went to restaurants and bars to have a drink Um, and they're captured on social media. So the non-action of police has to be investigated because this is a huge problem.
2: The um, one of the things that I think is, you know, we're seeing now. We're seeing, of course, a lot of people resigning, uh, people resigning who theoretically should have known all along that something like this is coming. We're seeing uh, condemnations uh, coming from people who appeared to uh, have abetted that uh, that kind of behavior that kind of culminated yesterday. Uh, that would even include uh, Mr. Barr, who has is, uh, now issued his own uh, condemnation and uh, saying that this is a betrayal of office. Um but there's some sort of a sense Ruth of a bunch of people who thought that they could kind of ride the dragon um you know and and I'm wondering how much of a a pattern. This is also an authoritarian movement. So you got people who think, okay, yeah, he's, Trump is nuts. He's out of control. He doesn't know what he's doing, but we can control him. We can control him and get some of the things that we want. Uh, I would guess that in his darkest, most honest moments, that would be what Mr. Barr would say about that relationship. And you maybe even have Trump thinking, I can control the Proud Boys. I can control uh, these groups. I can get them to do what I want and get them to not do what I don't want. And, and You know, sort of yesterday you saw how untrue all of that was, that ultimately when you get a mob, I mean, it's quite possible that Trump did want them to storm uh, the Capitol and, and wreck stuff and cause all the trouble that they did. But you couldn't really—he could incite them, but you couldn't really say that he could control them or tell them when to stop, assuming he even wanted to. And I just sort of wonder about all this. Everybody thinks that they can control the situation. Barr thinks he can control, can control Trump. Trump thinks he can control uh, his mob. Uh, and I just think historically that has not turned out to be all that true
3: you're right and i'm glad you brought this up uh because one of the saddest things and i have quotes from italy in the 20s germany in the 30s and chile in the 1970s um and 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 you know people come into office at different periods in different ways but the 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 recurring the book is about finding patterns in history and how do we fit in it actually and so One of the most common things is that these elites, conservative elites, the reigning political backed by finance and business, they think they can invite the extremist into the, you know, political system so they can control him. Often he's doing the work they want to have done anyway. So they make these what are called authoritarian bargains and they're like deals like, you know, we're going to back you and you're going to deliver on these issues for us. Um, and this is what Trump did with the evangel- evangelicals and Orthodox Jews. And, and this has also happened, you know, over and over in history. And I have quotes in the book about people saying, I am going to, we'll be able to have Hitler and we'll control him. We'll be able to invite Mussolini in and we'll control him. And the sad thing is even when there was a coup, as in Chile in 1973, the U.S.-backed coup, at the beginning, the Christian Democrats who were, who were, as their name implies, they were in the democratic system. They weren't far right. They thought that they could back Pinochet and the junta, and so they would restore order, and they could somehow control them, and then Pinochet would restore power back to democracy after six months or so. And, of course, this turned out to to not be true. And later, uh, a former Christian Democrat president who was the main voice of this uh, will be able to use him, he was poisoned by the regime because he started to speak out. So when I saw Trump come on the scene and become lionized by the GOP, and I, have, I even have a quote where Jeff Sessions embraced him very early and brought him to a rally in February 2016. And Trump actually said, wow, I'm becoming mainstream. And I mm-hmm. thought, oh no, here we go again. And, you know, and so then, of course, Trump, the joke was on them and Trump wrapped them around his finger and domesticated them in a quite astonishing way. And, and history here is uh, enlightening par- comparison, because in other, play- in other times in history, often the leader like a Mussolini or a Berlusconi founded their party. So it makes sense they could control them. But Trump came in as an outsider. And in, in only four years, he reduced them to being his political personal tool. And that says nothing good about the cowardice and venality of the GOP. And so then we come to now when I'm not impressed at all by these 11th hour conversions of people like Pence and McConnell, because here, too, the history of authoritarianism shows that when these people have these bargains, only when they think their own personal safety is endangered will they break with the leader. So nothing Trump did or said through all the criminality, all the violence, the mismanagement, the pandemic, nothing moved them except the sight of their own lawmakers having to run for cover. Then they woke up.
2: So let's hear. What one of those 11th hour or deathbed conversions uh, sounds like uh, this is Mick Mulvaney, President Trump's former chief of staff, uh, now resigning as a special U.S. envoy to Northern Ireland. Uh, here uh, is Mulvaney.
1: I called Mike Pompeo last night, let a note and him told him that I'd be resigning from that. I just I, I can't I can't do it. I can't stay it's a, it's a nothing thing. it doesn't affect the outcome. it doesn't affect the transition but it's it's what I've got right and it's a position I really enjoy doing, but you can't do it um, and I wouldn't be surprised to see more of my uh, my friends. Um, resign over the course of the next uh, 24 to 48 hours. It would be completely understandable uh, if they did. If those of those who, who choose to stay, and I have talked to a couple of them, are choosing to stay because they are concerned that the president might put someone in to replace them that could make things even worse. So uh, I, I don't, I'm don't. i not condemning those who, who, uh, who choose not to resign. I understand that. Uh, but I can't stay here. I, I, not after yesterday. You can't look at that yesterday and think, I want to be a part of that.
2: To me, these are people, it's like they watched a hundred NFL football games and then on the hundred and first one, somebody got a concussion and they're completely shocked after watching a hundred games, which, in which it just is obvious people are going to get concussions. And, and it, there's a little bit, I mean, you mentioned Pinochet, Ruth. So 60% of my apprehension of reality comes from movies. So there's a Chilean movie called Gloria, and there's a moment in that movie where uh, people are kind of sitting at a dinner party, and it just in the most awkward way begins to ease into who were you during Pinochet? What mm-hmm. did you do during Pinochet? What, you know, and, and obviously there's a side you want to be on and a side you don't want to be on. And, and it does seem like some of the people who are making this move so late, two weeks from the inauguration of a new president, they, is it just that they want to be able to sit at some dinner party and say, well, yeah, I did resign at some point?
3: I, I think that, there, you know, the name for this is elite defections. When, again, when the, when you think the leader is finally done, you're going to jump the ship. And this is the same uh, individual you just quoted who had a Wall Street Journal editorial not long ago, an op-ed saying that Trump will leave power gracefully, hmm. um, which shows a fundamental misunderstanding of who they're dealing with. And, and again, we come back to this blindness uh, um, that's that's transactional, they wanted to stay close to the, the 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 center of power. Now on the other hand one could argue that whenever they defect it's very important to give them our support because you know we have to we have to rebuild. Um, I'm I'm not sure where I stand on that yet, but that is, you know, something one could say. Well, at least they they did it at the last minute. The problem is, if we allow these people to just return to their fancy law firms, like what will William Barr do? Mm. Um, he, he's been such, uh, he's politicized the DOJ in, in a very frightening way. Will he be allowed to return to his country club and his partnerships and his law firms and, and everything will just be forgotten and forgiven? That's not going to serve our country well.
2: So, um... You know, even as we're talking, all kinds of things are happening. Apparently Elaine Chao, uh, Secretary of Transportation and wife of Mitch McConnell, is uh, resigning. Uh, and uh, Michael Chertoff, Homeland Security Director under Bush 43, is saying putting out a statement saying Trump must leave office immediately one way or the other. Larry Hogan, Republican governor of Maryland, saying the same thing, that Trump should resign or be removed from office. This is very much, Ruth, the conversation of the moment here. Despite the fact that there's only two weeks left in office, there are a lot of people saying 25th Amendment, a new impeachment process, but a much more fast-tracked one, some kind of effort a la maybe Nixon when the the Republican leaders went to him and said, you got to get out or it's just going to get uglier. Um, Based on everything that you've looked at historically and and your close reading of this situation, how possible is any of that as opposed to the probability that he's just going to hang around for two more weeks making trouble?
3: Um, it's not clear if there's the political will to, to remove him. There are more and more voices added to this. Um, I think a lot of people are um, afraid that it could fracture the country and set off cycles of violence, um, uh, 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 of you know, crazed Trump supporters who, again, like this group. This, this group that came to the Capitol is just a small subset of the people out there he got more votes in 2020 than 2016. He's got, you know, and and some of them were kind of voters who were not hardcore Trump followers, but um, so I'm not sure that there's the political will for that and there's not much time left, but it would be important to do something. It would be important to impeach him again because uh, a clear statement has to be made that this is not only not acceptable, this is is, a sedition, you know? And if you don't act against that, what? how low is the bar going to be?
2: Um, there are uh, other concerns, too. I mean, including maybe, I mean, if he leaves office as scheduled, uh, he would be eligible to run again. There are people saying, well, you, maybe he should never be able to run again. There are other people saying, look, if you just leave him in here for two weeks, he's really dangerous right now. I mean, he's not done. Yes, uh, yes that, it's uh, a mistake could, to just you, leave maybe, him. Maybe you could speak to that a little bit, yeah.
3: Yeah, no, it's a huge mistake to just leave him. Um, and it's a huge mistake to restore his Twitter feed and his Instagram, which is not government control. So we could put that aside. But um, there is there is zero chance he's not going to act out even more because the, the psychology and personality traits of these people as they get more and more desperate as they fee- see the end coming because often they're the last people to see it. And... Um, this could be, if if nothing is done, this is not just an end, it's a beginning of a new phase of instability for America.
2: All right, we're going to have to pause there, uh, partly because we promised Ruth she'd be done at one thirty. Ruth Ben-Ghiat is a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University, a frequent contributor to CNN, uh, CNN Opinion, where she has opined about this. Uh, her new book is Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present. We should all get a copy right now. Thanks for joining us, Ruth. Thank you. And when we come back, we will be taking your calls. I'm going to give out this number. It's it's. I think there's like a 70 80% chance it's the right number this time. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Uh, you can also tweet us, tweet at us, at WNPR, Colin. You can do that. But we kind of want to hear from you, too.
5: Some caught afraid, some caught a plane. the sunshine leave the rain, they say this town will waste your time,
1: I guess the right. is wasting mine, some gotta win, some gotta lose, good time Charlie's got the blues.
2: All right, we are back, um, and we are prepared to take your phone calls here. Um, Excuse me. I believe the correct number is 888-720-9677. Very sorry. Uh, 888-720-9677. And the phone's already ringing, so that means that it's going to work. And, yeah, I think, you know, the thing to talk about is exactly where we ended with Ruth. How should we get through these next two weeks? What's the appropriate response to what just happened? Um, Should there be some invocation of the 25th amendment? I, I would say, just so we're clear, that absent the cooperation from Mike Pence, uh, the 25th amendment is, is not useful and is a no go. But Mike Pence has been described as as angry as he's ever been, you know, as angry as anybody has ever seen him yesterday. So he, uh, he might be a little bit more motivated. Uh, and I think there are a lot of people and some of them are sitting right there in that administration who think this is not safe. This guy is really crazy and he's really mad. Uh, and, and he'll do anything and he'll say anything. Uh, but, but Ruth also brings up a really good point, which is, you know, you also don't want to make him into even more of a martyr than he has already made himself into, and thus incite uh, crowd violence in, in in even broader contexts. Anyway, first caller of the day is Linda from West Haven. Uh, welcome to our show, Linda.
0: Thank you, Colin. Um, I I think Ruth's book is a great one. I'll get to the point. Yesterday, when Trump was speaking. He said, we love you. You are special. And I thought even for Trump, that was an odd statement. I think this goes to the concern. Mentally, he's kind of, you know, I hate to say it, but losing it. Um, I'm a former um, assistant professor of special education, and that's a line that parents often say to their children and I, I thought to myself, is he just reverting back to something that he says to his own children? I've also heard Melania say about their son, and I'm suggesting that he's a, a special education student, but I've heard her talk about how special he is. And it just seemed odd even for Trump to say that.
2: I th- when I listen to Trump, I mean, first of all, very interesting perspective, and thank you for it. When I listen to him speak in a lot of these recent situations, I, I come back to the The fact that he has ingrained habits um, that mostly arise from his time in the world of business. We're He was not really a particularly successful businessman and where things went wrong a lot and where he had multiple bankruptcies and where he was famous for stiffing vendors on his uh, on his projects. And I think if you listen to that Raffensperger call, that one hour call to the secretary of state of Georgia, where he just tries everything, cajoling, threatening Praising, abusing, lying. It sounded to me like the kind of conversation he would have with some major supplier on a construction project whom he wasn't going to pay or he was going to pay, you know, 25 cents on the dollar or something like that. And I think when he says stuff like, we love you, you're special and everything, uh, to me, I mean, you may very well be right but I don't even think he talks to his family very much. I don't think he talks to Baron. Uh I don't think he's very, he didn't care anything about any of these other kids until they got old enough to do some work for him. Uh, I don't think that's where his ingrained speech habits come from. I think they come from trying to get out of bad situations and and making himself a law unto himself within the world of business where he rarely played by the rules because he wasn't good enough at it to play by the rules. So, I don't know, we love you, you're special, go home, you know, uh, <laughs> I don't know, uh, who, knows, who knows what he's I'm thinking, really? Think I'll let
0: you go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Um, that It was all over Twitter that um, someone suggested, and I do agree, that a lot of those tactics in the Raffenberger call were uh, typical tactics of an abuser, mm-hmm. an emotional abuser. So, on that note, I'll let you go, and we love your show.
2: Oh, thank you so much, Linda, and thanks for calling. All right, uh, we've got other calls uh, here on the board, but I will give out the number, which is the correct number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, if you are uh, into the alphanumeric kind of thing. Um, All right, uh, I am concerned that I will not say this name correctly, but I'm going to say Mehdi uh, from Milford. First of all, did I say your name correctly?
4: Hey, Colin, yes, uh, that's correct, yeah.
2: Yeah, so well, what's on your mind?
4: Well, um, I come from uh, Tunisia, North Africa, originally, mm-hmm. and I've been here for uh, in uh, the U.S. for 15 years, and uh, yesterday's events triggered so many emotions. Uh, you know, I chose this country because of what it represents in terms of freedom um, and liberty, and... Um, uh, Yesterday, just like you did, I cried yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wanted to say how sad uh, yesterday was for, for me and my friends um, from Haiti and from Africa and from across the globe.
2: It's, it, I feel like it's kind of like getting sick. When you get sick and you get seriously sick, you realize that you've kind of passively, passively believed in your own health for a long time. And it turns out your body's more fragile than you think it is most of the time. And I felt that way about this country where I've lived all of my life, that, you know, I, I've known for quite a few years now that the country is in trouble. But I, I think I, I didn't really think the country could get that sick, so to speak. I, I don't know about you, but for me, it was like, oh, this, this, this body is not as healthy as I thought it was.
4: Yeah, I mean, since, uh, 2016, um, when we saw this guy coming, um, I mean, we, we clear, we don't, you don't really have to dig deep to understand what he means. It's all unraveled in front of us. And yet it seems that some people don't understand that, um, decency and respect are very important virtues. And uh, it's not, it's not about the money. It's not, you know, I'm a businessman here. I came here because I want to make money. And I, I love the business aspect that this country can offer to me, but it's not all about the money. It's about building community. It's about, it's about having a strong nation. And I want to be proud. I want to, when I go back to Africa, I want to talk proudly about this country, but now I can't. And it's so frustrating to me. Yes. Um, um, that's yep. That's
2: beautifully put, and I mean, sadly put, too, uh, that notion that you would love to be able to talk proudly about this country uh, when you go home. Uh, all right. Uh, well, this is home now, actually. But uh, all right. Here's uh, Tony from Boston. Hi, Tony. You're on the air.
1: Uh, hi, Colin. Love your show. Thanks. I'm going to try to go quickly through this. They're very okay. linked. Um, so I think there are four things. First is race issues. Won't go into that in detail. Second is a failure of accountability. I hate when people say um, that we're a nation of laws. Nobody was prosecuted after the Civil War, essentially. Uh, lynching, the Nixon administration, the impeachment of Trump, everybody walked. So what happens is the other side does not think they're wrong, they escalate. Um, third one is denigration of government. Again, you can Reagan for 40 years. We've been talking about government is the enemy. Government is supposed to protect us all. And if people are not, our people are suffering alone during this pandemic is because we've destroyed the institutions that's supposed to support us. Last one is privilege and denial. Um, I want this, so I'm entitled to it. And I'm going to manipulate facts so that I get it. Um, The lack of policing we saw yesterday, the lack of arrest we saw yesterday, and the level of denial. And I include the Democrats in this, too, because if we're not going to if if people can commit sedition and treason and walk away from it, you're only going to get more of it.
2: All right. Well, first of all, thank you for all those. I, to me, I guess it was maybe number three is the one that really. Is something that that I've been thinking about and saying a lot over the last few years which is that you know it was I think a destructive thing when when Reagan said that thing about one of the great lies uh, the three great lies or whatever you know, one of them is I'm from the government and I'm here to help you that that really should be not a lie that should be true we should like government we should want government to work we should want to have good government that's what I want anyway I, I don't want no government I want good government staffed by people who are in it because because of uh, their commitment to public service. And I want the government uh, to to serve us uh, and, and, and in ways certain ways to care for us and protect us, as Tony said. So, And, and I think that's something that really did get hurt in this whole process and that we're going to have to rebuild. Okay, I'm going to squeeze uh, Carol from Cromwell in here, then we're going to take a break, and I'll give out the phone number again and all that stuff. Hi, Carol. You're on the air.
0: Hi. I just wanted to call and say... Thank you. You were right.
2: <laughs> Nobody uh, ever said four
0: that. and a half. Year, well, four and a half years ago, when I was listening to you uh, talking about Trump, I became so concerned that the week after the uh, uh, election, the first thing I did was go out and get a passport to get. Out of Dodge. Um, I had my destination all chosen. I didn't believe it could get to be as bad. I thought you were exaggerating.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yes, I proved you
5: right.
2: Yeah, I'd rather have been wrong, but thanks. Uh, thanks for acknowledging that. I guess. Uh, but yes, I mean, we really did not to say I told you so or anything like that. But this is one of the shows where, really, from the time of the campaign. Uh, and certainly uh, in the first six months of of his term, we really did talk to a lot of guests who, in one way or another, pointed at what was very likely to happen here, and it turns out that people who had the most extreme points of view—I can actually remember saying to Betsy Kaplan a couple of times, "Well, yeah, no, let's maybe not have Sarah Kinzior on again just just yet. Anyway, let's wait a little while, just because you know she has such an incredibly dark vision of of, of what is going to happen." And, of course, Sarah Kenzior uh, was right on the money. <laughs> um, the darker you made it, uh, the better or the closer to the truth you got. So anyway, let's take a break. We'll come back. Uh, I should probably tell you the phone number, which means I should look at the thing. It's 888-720-9677, 888-720-9677. That's 720-WNPR.
1: Stormy weather, stormy weather, and I just can't get my poor self together.
2: All right. We are back. In order to do a show like this, you have to have great people. I have great people. I have caught Pastor in the studio and making sure everything actually stays all connected and put together and doesn't fly out of control. Uh, And I have senior producer Betsy Kaplan producing this particular episode, uh, getting Ruth, who's a great guest, and uh, making uh, sure we get some terrific calls on the air here. Uh, We're going to start with John in Avon. We've got a bunch more to get to. to. Hi, John. You're on the air.
6: Oh, hey, Colin, uh, thanks for, uh, bringing all the great guests, especially, uh, uh, last guest, Jad, she, really, uh, kind of, uh, opened my eyes on, on how this can happen and, uh, not out of the question here. So first off, thank God for Georgia and, uh, um, that gives us some hope going forward and maybe some of the, well, it's been proven a lot of the Republicans moved away from the president and I'll continue to do so knowing that, uh, they've got to salvage their party. Hopefully, uh, and, um, I, my main question was, uh, kind of, um, about the 25th amendment invoking that I'm in favor of that, I think, because I seem to recall a, a story in I joke about Nixon, the last president, uh, can be forced from office, uh, falling apart and crying in the arms of Henry Kissinger. I don't know if that's true or you know anything about that, but, um, if he, you know, can hold together, um, a guy that, you know, was competent, uh, agree with him or not, um, and this guy is a loose cannon, to say the least. Um, I'm worried about what's going to happen going forward, and I don't think he's mentally or emotionally fit for office, obviously. What was the, what did, do you know anything about how Nixon reacted? Um,
2: in the last days of his presidency. Well, we have some, I mean, particularly Woodward and Bernstein's The Final Days. I mean, we have these pictures of uh, Nixon. Uh, he's uh, hitting the California wines uh, a little bit too hard. He's walking around the White House talking to paintings on the wall. I believe he gets down on the. he makes Kissinger get down on his knees and pray along with Nixon uh, on his knees. Uh, I mean, there, there were certainly were reasons to suppose Uh, that Nixon was starting to decompensate a little bit. I I think it's more dramatic with Trump. Let me just say, couple of quick things about 25th Amendment. So the standard in the 25th Amendment is unable to perform, unable to perform the duties and responsibilities of office. Um, the um, key entity in the 25th Amendment is the vice president. And the 25th Amendment really exists for sort of Woodrow Wilson situations where somebody is literally unable to do the job. But uh, it's open to interpretation that you could be not fully impaired uh, and not be able to do the job in a way that keeps um, everybody safe. In other words, you could be so um, detached from reality that you pose a danger. That that interpretation of the 25th Amendment probably would fly. And anyway, we have such an incredibly short window of time that all the other stuff that's built in the, into the 25th, which I mean, so it's it's. Pence and essentially the cabinet. I think the um, term in there is principal officers of the executive departments. So a majority of the principal officers of the executive departments. That's the wording of the amendment. I think it in today's you know parlance would mean the cabinet. They would do this. The president could challenge. There's sort of a review process that involves Congress. But the review process is long enough so that Trump could probably, if you started the 25th amendment today. You could keep him sidelined because the understanding also is that in any kind of challenge process, the vice president would continue to preside over the country during all that. So can it be done? I think it it could be done without any gross misshaping of the intent of the amendment. Will it be done? Well, you have to think that, you know, you have to sort of go and, and tick through all these members uh, of the cabinet, many of whom are, you know, lick spittles and, you know, acting people that Trump has put in there because of their loyalty, as opposed to because of their expertise. And they, they're unlikely to participate <laughs> in the 25th Amendment process. Although you never know, a lot of people are getting kind of scared. Uh, all right. So uh, let's go up to Matthew uh Matthew and in Sodia. Hi Matthew.
1: Hey, uh so I got two quick things. Um, well I have been to a lot of like Black Lives Matter protests and stuff and uh usually we have at our protests we'll have like medics or like water stands and stuff like that. If you watch the videos and look at the photos from yesterday, that's not there. This was, you know, they they expected no resistance from the police. Uh my other point to about my more question though is uh If there's a full-on coup, let's say this escalates more uh, by election or uh, by inauguration day, would the military interfere or would it be more up to us, the people in the United States, to stop it?
2: Probably the latter. I mean, I I would just sort of say that you know, General Milley has kind of indicated that he doesn't want the military interfering in the political process. I don't see how there could be, yesterday notwithstanding, I don't see how there could be an actionable coup that just involved these kinds of people. I mean, you know, I, I also don't want to be proven wrong because that would be really terrifying. But, um, uh, first of all, I mean, the, the military will not de- behave independently. Then, yeah, if that starts to look like that's happening, maybe that accelerates the 25th Amendment process. That you, so you do get Pence in charge. Pence can give certain kinds of orders uh, to the military if he thinks that they are necessary. So, um, you know, ultimately, we don't want the military involved in domestic politics. Uh, all right. So um, here's Sally in North Haven. She's going to be our last call of the day. Hi, Sally.
5: Hi, Colin. How are you?
2: All right. Are you still with me? Hello? Hi. Are you still with me? Sure. Uh, uh, So talk to me.
5: I wanted to affirm what you said earlier about our situation politically. Being something we had not anticipated, just like we expect our bodies to be normal, Mm -hmm. because two and a half months ago, I was diagnosed as having metastatic cancer. And last night, as I watched the mob, I said to my husband, these are both so strange and so scary. Because my body is betraying me and this mob is betraying our democracy and what we have all believed in in our country.
2: Well, first of all, I want to express my sympathy about this. This is uh, unfortunately a subject in my own very, very close and small family that I know way too much about right now. Uh, But I also know that uh, that I'm also just impressed. I've been kind of living with a situation with somebody in my family now for about six months. Of what can be done you know and 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 i i always often talk to this family member and say i know so many people who were told that they probably couldn't survive this and then 30 years later they were still alive so i, I want to fill you with as much hope as i am uh, able to and and uh, know that you'll also have my prayers about this but yes I, thank you also for understanding that yeah. metaphor sally because uh, i think that's exactly right we think everything is going to be okay we think we're resilient, uh, and it turns out we're fragile, and that's true of our bodies. It's true of the place that we live uh, and the democracy that we that we cherish so anyway, thank you for sharing Sally.
5: Ah, uh, well, I hope that, as I try and build a personal nest around myself, is that the good hearted people in this country, the people who are resilient and who are willing to work with patience compassion for people they don't agree with that they'll be able to bring healing to the country.
2: That's a great way to put it. Uh, I certainly can say that. Over the last few months, I have uh, the last few months have engendered in me a tremendous amount of respect and faith uh, in the doctors and nurses who treat cancer. Uh, And um, they are amazing. Uh, And we get better at this all the time, too. So uh, there, I hope, is the good news. Uh, I hope there's good news for you. I hope there's good news for the country, too. And I want to thank you uh, very much for listening today. I need to get over here and find out where I am on time. I'm out of time. That's where I am. Thank you so much for listening today. Thanks for sharing your fears, your hopes, your worries, your questions, your stories.